rise of fracking technology changed America's position in the world because it went from a country that imported most of its oil to a country that produces energy. In his latest book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, Daniel Jurgen, a Pulitzer Prize-winning analyst, tracks the ramifications of this shift. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Jurgen, a vice chairman at the research firm IHS Market, about these changes taking place in the world energy market. They relate not only to fracking, but also to the Paris Agreement, in which dozens of countries from around the world set a framework to limit their carbon emissions over the coming decades in order to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Less than a decade ago, people used to argue about when the world would hit peak oil, or in layman's terms, when world production of oil would hit a peak and we'd start running out of the stuff. Today, people are more interested in peak demand, or when world demand for oil will hit its highest point. Jurgen predicts it will happen in the 2030s and sees a modest decline afterwards as alternative energy forms gain share. We spoke about what this means for Canada and its oil sands, how pipelines have become a new political battleground, how geopolitics are changing, and what impacts the pandemic could have on this equation. Daniel Jurgen. It is a pleasure to have you on Down to Business to talk about your new book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Well, thank you, Gabe, and very happy to have the chance to speak with you. Your new book is about how the energy market is changing, how climate change is bringing this on. It's about how there's three major producers now, U.S., Russia, Saudi Arabia, and two major consumers, China and the U.S. Can you tell me if I got that correct and and what the upshots are of these changes? Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the fact that you put the producers and the consumers together captures a lot of the story and a lot of the complexity. But it is a remarkable change in the position of the United States from having been an importer of 60% of its oil to being the world's largest producer. Obviously, that's been significant for Canada, but also the U.S. is still the largest consumer And that big geopolitical factor that you point to, which is China as the second largest consumer of oil and the largest consumer of energy in the world. And so this is going to remake the world order you sort of explain in the book. Can you tell me a little bit about what is different in terms of geopolitics today because the U.S. is an oil producer? I think what it's done is it's changed the position of the U.S., in the world for decades and decades, presidents would say, we've got to be energy independent, and it would never happen. But now the U.S. isn't quite energy independent and obviously imports oil from Canada. Um, It's by far its largest source of oil. But it has this flexibility in foreign policy. It has a dimension of influence. And it's, you know, the Russians don't like it. Uh, They don't, uh, they see, you know, what's happened with the shale revolution as an adjunct to U.S. foreign policy. And it's, it's added a new dimension to the already complicated relationship with China because China is now importing U.S. oil and gas even as the tensions rise between the two countries. Yes. And you lay this out in a really lovely chapter. You, t- you just mentioned shale. You talk about how this has been a game changer for the U.S. It's giving them new flexibility in its foreign policy and its influence. And obviously, Canada has a shale market, too. But although this has given the U.S. some more energy independence, does shale have a future? I mean, we've just seen its price decimated since the beginning of the year. And, you know, as the supply has grown and the energy market has shifted, 
I sort of wondered what the future of this type of very expensive production is. Well, it's, I think it's not, I mean, people thought it was very expensive and that's what the OPEC producers thought. It turns out that, you know, sort of in a $40-ish range, uh, $45, you know, it can, it's profitable and can return money to investors. Uh, we think next year will require about $38 to kind of break even, actually. But I think, you know, you're pointing to a, 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 a turn, a change, because it is true that shale was basically, let's call it a disruptive technology. It disrupted the world oil market. It had a disruptive effect on global geopolitics, but I think it's now, you know, going to be a situation where the U.S. was at 13 million barrels a day. The end of the year will be between 10 and a half and 11 million barrels a day. And I think next year, when we see recovery, when we get the vaccine, you know, whenever that happens, uh, widely distributed, and the economies open up, shale will start increasing again. But it'll be at a modest rate. It will be one of the foundation blocks of the world oil market but it won't be the big disruptor of the world oil market. Right. And one of the things you talk about in the book, too, is you call it the new map, but you say there's the map of sort of energy markets pre-Paris agreement and post-Paris agreement. And obviously the, the Paris agreement was where countries around from around the world agreed to limit their carbon emissions. You express some skepticism about countries, Canada did it earlier this month, China did it, saying they were going to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Not that you're skeptical of climate change, but you if I read it correctly, you said that doing this through regulation is going to be too expensive. Can you talk to me about that? So in the book, I really try to give people a framework. How should they think about energy transitions? Because there's a lot of language about it as though it just happens overnight. And it doesn't actually happen overnight. You know, previous energy transitions have been something that have unfolded over centuries. Now we have tools now we didn't have. We have determination, concern about climate. We have money. We have technology. But to take a global economy that was $87 trillion before uh, COVID and change the energy foundations of it that it works on in uh, a matter of 30 years is a really tough thing to do. So I think directionally it's going to happen. I think the other thing that people are not looking at is the supply chains of what's going to be required to do it. And that's, I talk about that in the book that will move. And this is interesting for Canada from an era of, you know, people talk about big oil, we'll talk about big shovels. And one of the big areas of research that I'm now focused on is the question of what will be the supply chains? What type of materials are actually going to be required for this transition? So Directionally, yes, achieving it a big cha- and in the time frame people have laid out, big challenge, and oil and gas will still be important parts of the energy mix in 2050. There's so much to ask you about, but this issue of time is really interesting to me because, as you say, other energy transitions have taken hundreds of years. 2050, in that regard, is a short time frame. But I also remember earlier this year, Tech Resources talked about going net zero by 2050, and they were they were sort of ridiculed. Because people said, this is 30 years, you know, in 30 years, we may all be driving, you know, flying cars and sleeping in cryogenic chambers. It seemed so long as to be beyond sort of a measurable time. But this issue of companies voluntarily doing that, that that seems to be investor driven. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. I mean, the pressure, the ESG investing has become very important and 
you know, in Canada, uh, in North America in general, in Europe. And I think companies are responding to it and saying, well, what can we do? But it, it, the term is, you know, has to be net zero carbon because I think one of the te- I mean, one of the things I talk about in the new map is all the technologies that we don't have that we need. Uh, this is based upon a study that I did with the former Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz for Bill Gates Foundation. And one of the things we need is really big advances in carbon capture because we'll still be using oil and gas. So, uh, but I think companies are having to set these targets because they're under, you know, the pressure from investors who themselves are under pressure. Right. And and you see this investor pressure playing out on companies very differently. I think if you look at European oil companies, energy companies, and North American energy companies, you see very different strategies. It seems like a lot of European companies are trying to divest some of their fossil fuel assets, whereas in North America, it almost seems like some companies are doubling down. Which strategy do you think is correct? Well, I, the thing is, we don't truly know the future. So I think different companies will look for different paths. And we've probably seen a greater divergence in the strategies, as you're suggesting, among the major oil companies that we've ever seen. The Europeans are kind of rebranding themselves, saying, we want to be energy companies. We want to be electricity. The North American companies, so forth, I mean, will be doing things, but not, you know, basically changing their character and and saying we're going to be something different. One thing that unites all of them is the focus on technology and the degree to which they're also becoming, in a sense, venture capitalists and looking to, you know, what are the innovations that we don't know or that we uh, or that we need to develop. So I think they're all focused on that. But I think definitely on different sides of the Atlantic so far, different strategies. Yeah, that's a really fascinating way to put it. Because when you describe them as almost like venture capitalists who need to develop new technology, it adds a dimension of risk that I don't traditionally think about when I think about energy investments. And it seemed like a consistent theme in your book is that whether you're an energy company or whether you're a company who's developing the new supply chain for alternative energies, access to capital is going to be a problem. Raising money for your company is going to be a problem. Is that just a new reality? Yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, you can see it in terms of uh, certainly, you know, for independent companies, that relationship with investors, I mean, there's the ESG side, but there's also the return side because you had two two price collapses since 2014. And so the returns haven't been very good. So I think, you know, the independents are having to the larger, you know, are reestablish the relationship and show that they will be giving capital back to their investors. And I think the majors, you know, you see a lot of drama around their dividends because that's been one of the reasons people have held them as, a, as stocks. And uh, that, you know, so you've seen cuts by some of the, the majors. But I think the relationship between the energy industry and the investment community is not what it was a few years ago. And you can see that a much smaller part of the stock market now are energy companies. It's, you know, tech is tech is what dominates. It certainly dominates our psyche. I mean, you, you mentioned ESG or, you know, investors focus on the environment, sustainability, governance. Canada's oil sector seems to rank high among environmental sustainability governance rankings. And I was wondering, if not all oil companies are the same, does this 
give them a brighter future despite higher costs? Or do you still expect costs and dividends are going to be what drive? Well, well, I, I think it's both. I mean, first we see, of course, the Canadian uh, heavy oil is benefiting from uh, the tragedy of Venezuela, from declining production in Mexico, which you know tightens the market for heavy oil. But I think you know it does seem to me that um, that it's not well you know part of the discussion that Canada has very high environmental standards among the highest in the world that the GHG intensity of oil sands has gone down twenty percent over the last decade it's going to go down another twenty percent and new projects their GHG their greenhouse gases at the same level as average production in the United States and so uh, you know I think that there's a kind of mentality that's out of date, that's five or 10 years, maybe 10 years out of date on uh, what's happening in Canada. But I remember once asking the head of, of a big environmental organization in the United States, why are, why are you going after the Canadian oil sands? They have very high standards. And uh, her answer was, well, you have to start somewhere. You know, and uh, the photographs of, you know, overhead photographs give a highly misleading view. So I think the oil sands have really been demonized, actually. Yeah, when you put it that way, it sounds like this is more of an an image problem for for them. Yeah, well, well, at least at least compared to oil, you know, uh, compared to oil production elsewhere in the world, it's a you know it is at a high standard, and you, you know if, if you're going to worry about environmental standards, you're certainly going to have more confidence in Canada than you are in you know, let me put it this way, a lot of other countries. The the question I want to ask you is. In the book, you lay out what's happening. You have all these people concerned about climate change, changing demand for oil. So essentially, in fossil fuel, sort of maybe we see it as declining demand. Does that mean that over the next 20 years, there's just going to be a mad scramble to monetize fossil fuels? I think there's discussion on that in uh, one of the things I caution about in the new map is that people shouldn't generalize about what's going to happen to energy demand in the future, where we're still in the midst of this uh, this terrible pandemic and this what I call in the in, in the new map the economic dark age. I guess it's now like an economic twilight zone where things open up and shut down and so forth. And the view that I have in the book is that you know oil demand is not going to peak until the 2030s, the first half, and that then it's not going to plummet, but it's going to sort of slide down. But with that said, I think, well, take Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's a quote in the book from a senior official saying, we've always had the, every five years we have these plans for diversification never happens. I think the crown prince, you know, has really pushing it because the sense is that times will change. And uh, at some point, it's going to be a more crowded market and you can't count on demand growing forever as uh, I think was the sort of mindset, you know, prior to the last few years, prior to Paris. So I think there is an emphasis on diversification. But, you know, supply and demand will balance too. And if we see as a result of the cutbacks, less investment in oil and gas resulting from the cutbacks now, the supply picture will be, will be different too. But I think that for the first time, I think producers are thinking, you know, it's just not going to continue to grow in the way it demands, in the way that it grew in the past, that you just counted upon it in the past. And at least the country's wanting to hedge against that. Yeah. I've really enjoyed reading your work. 
And then you famously coined the term peak oil, meaning production has peaked and it'll start to decline. But now it seems like the mood has shifted. And this goes to the question I w- we were just talking about, where people are talking more about, like, we have more oil than we'll ever use. You know, we can't use it because of climate change. Do you think that there, that, that that's the reality is that some of this will end up being left in? Well, well, I... Well, I think there will be, as you say, it's a switch from peak oil, which was the world's running out. We got to change. Now it's peak supply because peak demand because, you know, there'll be more oil available and talk about stranded assets. And, you know, they use that argument against building pipelines. But I, you know, I just don't think it's borne out by the numbers. Uh, You know, there are 280 million cars in the United States. Most of them run, almost all of them run on oil, actually, even though. You know, people love their Teslas. And so you have, you know, the Chinese oil auto market is 50% larger than the American auto market. India hasn't gotten there yet. So I think demand will still be there. And I think the argument about stranded assets is more of a political argument uh, that's being used against pipelines, including pipelines that are important to Canada. Yeah. Well, we can, maybe we can talk about that a second because there's some really great passages in the book about how I think the way you put it was that pipelines and pipelines, the construction of pipelines used to be about as boring as watching paint dry. And now there are these charged political battles where you have activists and police officers. And do you expect that dynamic to persist? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, uh, you know, my book has already been slammed by one of the big climate activists who's led the demonstrations against pipelines because, you know, they don't want to hear that pipelines actually play an important role in a modern pipeline's better than an older pipeline and it's better to move oil by pipeline than to move it by rail cars. They regard, you know, kind of fighting pipelines as a way to kind of choke off uh the industry and, you know, Canada has really been hurt by that. So uh, I think that's why I said, you know, the pipeline battles will continue and pipes, pipelines will be kind of great symbols of uh, uh, the struggle. But, you know, I think we have to face what the arguments are really about as opposed to what people say they're about. And it's, you know, whether it's a, you know, legal protest, environmental or whatever it is, it's really, you know, it's, it's a clash of politics. It's a clash of politics. And but maybe if we have time for we have time just for maybe one more question, I would just ask you the the pandemic, you've mentioned it several times. It has brought people working at home more, using their cars less. Do you see a permanent shift? Well, yeah, I think I think there is. It's it's um, I think, you know, what we could say is that seven years of digitalization has been compressed into seven months now. And companies that wanted everybody in at nine or eight in the morning now quite happy to have them work at home. And I hear, you know, see some CEOs talk about 25% of their people working at home in the future. You know, not great for commercial real estate either. So I think that that will be a, a feature that can do that. And that would mean less commuting. The other side is, at least I see, you know, it may not be the case in Canada so much, but in the United States or you see it in China people actually driving more because they're leery about getting on public transport, at least right now. And I think it will be a question. Companies will look at the question, well, there are advantages of people being at home. They save time on commuting. But what does that do to cohesion, to culture, 
to the creativity that comes from the interaction of people in the cafeteria or at the you know at the water cooler or at the getting coffee together. And so I think that those social changes will be very interesting to see. But you know I think that's an example where technology has changed. And uh, you know, ten years ago, I don't think it could have the economies could have functioned the way they are today because we wouldn't have had the same progress in terms of digitalization. I mean, you know, you know, Zoom was, I guess, a nine-year-old company, but most people hadn't heard of Zoom until March or April. I mean, yeah, ten years ago, I don't know if any of us were using too much video chat. Exactly. So it's you know, so technology, you know, these changes. Uh, I mean, I think these will be lasting changes, and they'll you know affect behavior and affect how organizations work. The most critical question is, what will be the nature of economic growth when we come out of this? What will governments have to do, continuing to do, to deal with the economic wounds? And one, you know, very, you know, the question of particularly small businesses and how their survival. So, you know, there's going to be a a big immediate recovery agenda for for countries, and it may not be till. I mean, we were. I was looking at our economic forecast for the IHS market, and you know, you don't really get back to where the world was in 2019 till 2022 or 2023 in terms of GDP, even with a vaccine by next summer. Is it all seems like such a long time right now? Right. Your new book, The New Map: Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. It's a fascinating book. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Daniel. Well, thank you. All the best. That was Daniel Jurgen, Vice Chairman of IHS Market. Thank you for listening to Down to Business, and thanks to the team behind this episode. Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sending it to a friend or rating us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman. I'll be back next week, and you can find all the business news you need on financialpost.com.